This is the One Accord podcast, and today we are talking about what I believe is the most distinctive Christian doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's uh, waste no time before diving right in and bring in a, a first member of our team, Brother Greg. Brother Greg, how's it going? I'm doing well. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Doing. I'm. I'm also doing well. We, I guess we're starting at the same spot this time. So yeah. Well, I, I was intentionally dialing it down. I was like, okay, don't <laughs> don't say great. Don't yeah yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Well, uh, uh, I mean, if you're great, there's no reason to hide no. it. That's all right. I, I'm I'm celebrating you. If you're if you're doing great, that's a good thing. So uh, anything new or exciting in your world? No, I don't. Uh, nothing to report yet. Maybe something on the horizon, but nothing oh, to report well, yet. Oh well, now so. I'm on the edge of my seat, yeah. so I can't wait. Well. May the Lord's uh, will be accomplished, and uh, if the door is supposed to open, let it open. And if not, uh, thank God for closed doors sometimes. But yeah. anyway, I will uh, we'll look forward for that. But uh, let's bring in uh, the 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 internet's favorite Armenian, I think, uh, uh, Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric, how you doing? I'm doing good, Joe. I appreciate that very kind introduction. Yeah, is, 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 is it mean, though? As the internet's favorite, is that really kind? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, good point. <laughs> Maybe not. Sure. Well, uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, it's nice to see. Uh, I don't know. Uh, does it uh, bother you that you always get introduced last? I think we've kind of fallen into a pattern. That's uh, certainly certainly not the least member of the team, but uh, the last last introduction uh, every uh, every episode. It doesn't bother me a bit. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. That's true. I think I think I remember reading that somewhere. So, uh, uh, well, brothers, it's uh, good to be with you guys. Uh, I mentioned uh, just at the beginning that I I believe that the Trinity is. Um, is the most distinctive Christian doctrine. Would you agree with that? I mean, there are other monotheistic religions. Um, certainly many people who believe in God believe that God is all-powerful or all-knowing, but to believe in uh, a triune God, a God, one God who is three persons, um, I, I don't know of any other faith that has that same type of a, a view. Are, do, are you guys uh, aware of that, or do you, uh, do you agree? Do you think that this is a, a distinctly unique doctrine to, uh, to Christianity? Well, for sure. I well, so far as I know, it's definitely a, a distinctive. Now, the most distinct, I don't know, a, a divine, um, incarnate God suffering, um, offering salvation through grace. Um, I guess i I would put I would put the uh, the doctrine of what Christ has accomplished uh, right up next to the Trinity. But yeah, for sure, for sure, distinctive. Yeah, um, I think I think the Trinity has to be. Uh, Probably the most distinct doctrine uh, out of all the monotheistic religions. It's totally unique. And actually, I would even argue that um, the doctrine of the Trinity is is a, a kind of doctrine that man would never make up. And the reason I say that is because man, typically when he invents things or creates new ideas, he creates things that are consistent with his own um mind his own understanding and uh the trinity while while i don't think the trinity uh, goes against reason i think the trinity does in some ways go beyond reason and that that makes me believe that uh, it's a doctrine that's not man-made but it actually came uh from from god the, the the truth of who god really is i like that observation because you know in other words um here if if i were creating this i'm going to create this thing that i've don't really understand fully and can't really fully express in a in a logical write it down on paper way so yeah that i like your observation there eric well certainly critics of the trinity do think that it is a, a silly or an incoherent doctrine uh none of us hold that position or that view um i, I mean we are all trinitarians here um but i know uh, it was actually not that long ago maybe uh 
at most two months ago, uh, but in my real life, not on the, you know, the internet, um, uh, I had someone uh, basically telling me that I and people like me was ruining the church because uh, I was preaching and teaching this uh, Trinitarian doctrine. They lumped me in with John MacArthur, which I don't get lumped in with John MacArthur very often, but, uh, but when I do, it's never in a positive sense. And so uh, anyway, they were uh, very upset and uh, uh, telling me that I was ruining the church and uh, trying to convince me uh, to give up this foolish and uh, they thought destructive belief in a doctrine that was found nowhere in scripture. And so um, I've talked to many other uh, Christians uh, who wrestle with this doctrine um, and who are interested in this doctrine, but who, you know, uh, one of the things that people wrestle about is that this, this is a doctrine that, that isn't explicitly taught in like one verse, or there isn't a verse that says, you know, God is triune. Um, instead, this is a piecing together and a weaving together of uh, many truths throughout scripture. And certainly in our video today, we're not going to be able to, to hit on every single verse that's relevant. We're certainly not going to be able to deal with every single objection that could possibly be raised. Um, but I do hope that by uh, kind of describing um, why we believe this doctrine, even though there isn't a single verse that says, you know, thus saith the Lord, I am one God and three persons, uh, and I have always existed this way and, and whatever else. Um, that the doctrine of the Trinity is a very reasonable and sound position uh, and is consistent with the teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. Um, and so, you know, as we lay out what the Trinity is, um, we are intending in some sense to say that any view that is deviating from this is incorrect. Um, you know, this is a doctrine that didn't originate with us. It is, uh, sometimes I hear people think that this was invented sometimes later, but I think we'll see throughout the scripture that this is uh, this is the testimony of scripture from beginning to end that there is one God uh, and that there are three persons who claim to be God. That's not three gods. Um, you know, Jesus wasn't a created being. He didn't uh, come into existence at some point late. You know, later. Um, and so we'll, we'll we'll at least touch on many of these things as we go because a lot of these same errors come up over and over and over again. And um, but uh, let's let's kind of just start with kicking it off. I've kind of hinted at it, but if someone came up to you guys and said, uh, "What is the Trinity?" Could you uh, define that doctrine in a, a kind of a brief encapsulation? And I'm not necessarily saying what, what passages would you take them to, but how would you define that doctrine to somebody who was inquiring? So how I would define the Trinity, and I, I'm borrowing this definition from uh, Evangelical Friends Church Faith and Practice, the denomination I belong to. And the denomination is uh, a, a Trinitarian uh, denomination, and this is how the faith and practice defines the Trinity. He, that is God, exists as one divine being, and yet as a trinity of three distinct persons, identical, inseparable, and equal in divinity, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is uh, the a very basic uh, definition of the Trinity, and that's that's the definition that that I would give people. And that's, that's the one that I think is consistent with scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I definitely wouldn't read from your faith statement, but I, I would agree. I could, I could affirm that faith statement. I, you know, I just, God is one yet um, exists in, in three persons. And, and right away, like I will be the first to admit that I say those things man, is it hard to wrap my mind around how such a thing could be uh, because well, perhaps part of the reason that it isn't explicitly spelled out in Scripture is because we are trespassing onto the personhood of God here, and and it 
quite frankly, is beyond us. So while I could say those words and I could point towards scripture and, and try to express it, um, I think what we'll find is very quickly we're, we're treading into territory that's perhaps impossible for us to understand. Yeah, fully. It is It is a doctrine, and Eric, as you kind of started us off and, and just in full agreement with what you just stated, Greg, as long as I'm, again, picking up what you're laying down, uh, this isn't something that we would have come up with on our own. There is no analogy in our, this is one of those aspects that there truly is no one like him. And so, um, however, um, he has told us things about him. And so we can correctly understand what he's told us. Like this is the kind of truth that can be received, even if we couldn't arrive at it from our own logical conclusions. And then when we look at it, it's not actually inherently illogical. We're not being asked to, to believe that one plus one plus one equals one is the typical, you know, it's often the case. I'm sure you guys have noticed that people who don't really understand something make a straw man argument and, and tear it down. Um, I'm, I've certainly been guilty of that with things that I didn't understand that I, I make a, a straw man of it. And so that's one of those things that's thrown around one plus one plus one equals one. Ha ha ha. You know, look at these goofballs, but that's not, that's not really what it is. Um, and uh, it's, if, if anything, it's closer to infinity plus infinity plus infinity equals infinity, which is not logically incoherent and is not mathematically preposterous. Um, but it is something that is like, okay, well, this is not part of our regular experience. But I can accurately state what the Bible says. So I'll read a statement that I've used before, that it's the testimony of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, and of the church throughout history, that God is triune. The biblical revelation testifies that there is only one God, and that he exists eternally in three distinct and co-equal divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a word that's missing in the definition that I've used and that is present in the one that you are reading from the faith and practice that I just wanted to ask. Um, you had sent it to us in, in advance, this, this word identical. That statement, at least as you understand it, Eric, because you're much more familiar with this faith statement than, than I am because it's, it's part of the denomination that you are, is that that's qualifying identical, inseparable, and equal in divinity, power, and eternity? Or is it saying that the persons themselves are identical? Which, what is the intent of that statement? Because it could be read, it could be saying that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are identical, um, even persons, which would eliminate the distinction of their persons in my mind. But I don't, I don't think that that's what this means. That this may be just what I read the first time I read it. So can you, can you clarify, I guess, the intended, intention of that? Because you would know, of the three of us, you would know the best for sure. Sure. The statement begins by saying, he, that is God, exists as one divine being. So there's the one. Mm -hmm. And yet as a trinity of three distinct persons, mm -hmm. there's three. So the word identical, for example, it can't refer to the, the persons because the words prior to that say three distinct persons. Um, so these, these persons are distinct. I think identical refers to uh, their essence. Mm -hmm. They're identical in essence. They all share the same essence, but they are they're three distinct persons. Be careful with that definition or, or that explanation because I could have three identical whatever, right? Like I could have a facsimile of something and they are identical facsimiles. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not arguing with your definition. I'm, I'm saying be careful with that explanation saying because we say distinct, they can't be identical. Because you can have three distinct things that are identical. Well, let me clarify that. Um, there are three persons in the sense that they have three um, 
distinct centers of consciousness. The Father doesn't experience what the Son experiences. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't experience what the Father experiences. There, there, there are three distinct persons in that sense, um, but they all share the same, uh, the same divine essence. Is that that's how that's how I understand it, and that would that would be I think the only way they could make them different persons. Well, I, I appreciate uh, at least the first part of that clarification because I think the first time I read through this, I was like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, but the the way that you explained it, um, keeping in mind, Greg, I mean, Greg, your uh, your uh, potential uh, place for stumbling for people that hear that I, I think exists, and and that's I think where I what I was tripping over was just the idea that um, some people um, you see it in in prayer. I wrote an article about Trinitarian prayer a, a long time ago. Um, and, and people don't, I don't think, intend to do this. And I'm not picking on somebody. Um, you know, anytime we talk about theology and we're talking about correction, people can, can be offended. Um, and that's not the intention. I, 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 if I'm doing something wrong, if I'm worshiping, worshiping God incorrectly, I, I want to be corrected. Um, there are better ways to do that than others, you know, instead of just yelling at somebody. But I noticed, and I'm, I'm, maybe you guys have noticed this as well, that sometimes when people are praying, um, they, they really mingle the persons of the Trinity. Um, you, it's 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 not uncommon to find someone who will pray something like this. You know, uh, Jesus, we love you. Um, uh, thank you for sending your son to die for us. And you're like, well, what just what just happened? Jesus doesn't have a son, right? Jesus is the son. And um, it, it, again, if you're listening for it, you know, I'm not trying to critique people's prayers. There is just an underlying theology that we don't we don't always understand that consistently we are to pray to the Father through the Son. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it maintains those distinctions um, of person and the roles that the the, the persons in the Trinity uh, fulfill are not identical roles. And so, when I see a word like identical, I guess it starts to potentially blur a line. But um, but identical in their divinity, identical in their power, and identical in their eternity is something that I use in, in my definition, just using slightly different words. Um, did you use the word authority as well, Joe? Um, um, that is not uh, in this definition. The definition that okay. uh, uh, Eric gave was divinity, power, and eternity. But um, I imagine you have maybe uh, uh, some reason that you're asking that question. Yeah. So, so I thought when you were giving your definition, I, I heard something about authority. And, you know, in these conversations, it often comes up needing to distinguish that there is still a hierarchy within the Trinity, that the Father sends the Son, the Son is submissive to the Father. The Father and Son send the Spirit, um, so th there there appears to be, according to the text, some hierarchy among among the Trinity as well. Yeah, so um, it is interesting to talk about these issues of authority, and you know, if there's if there is potentially um, disagreement, I, again, I, I think the authority aspect there is a willing submission. Um, certainly, the Father sends, but is never sent. The Son is sent and also sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always sent, but never sends. Um, and so uh, that does play out, certainly, in the relationship and the roles. Um, I, I don't have anything. I'll read my definition one more time. I yeah, got rid of it, but no, no problem. It's not in front of you, so I don't expect you to memorize it as soon as I say it one time. Uh, it is the testimony of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, and of the church through history, that God is triune. The biblical revelation testifies that there is only one God, and that he exists eternally in three distinct and co-equal divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so certainly the equality 
is that co-equals probably where my mind sure knowing past conversations where my mind read that in there so that's the word that has gotten the most pushback um from from others or at least need for clarification um i do think that that is a good word uh and it's similar to i think the, the the intent of this statement especially now that eric's explained it a little bit better um identical and equal in divinity power in eternity um there are some certainly that try and lower the sun um and think that he's somehow lesser of a god or less god than the father um and so a, a statement like co-equal uh, is expressing no jesus is just as eternal jesus is just as divine as the holy spirit as the father um i like that and, terminology co-equal much more than identical it just for whatever maybe because i'm more familiar with it sure um again i like identical more now that i've heard the explanation but uh, i don't know that i'll change my definition to to match that one but um i think that that's it's it's at least trying to get to the same place and and we are we're going you know we're we're wrestling with uh <laughs> difficult matters and we're going um you know trying to encapsulate uh, a, a a huge concept into as few words as possible um but uh you know we'll, we'll as we go through and make the case, I think it, it becomes pretty clear that when we talk about God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so to bring these things together, um, I just want to make sure, again, this definition is one that I worked on. I didn't work on the one in the faith and practice that you read, Eric, but I would imagine that the people that are that were um, responsible for writing that in the first place are trying to um, make sure that people realize that just because Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, um, that doesn't mean that he's less. And it is important that people understand that because this has, I mean, very practical um, applications. If you guys have a boss at work and you submit to your boss at work, then there's some authority role there. That doesn't mean that your boss is more of a person than you are or that your boss is, you know, has inherently greater value or dignity than you. Um, and so authority um, and and submission even is a, is a godly characteristic. Jesus submits to the Father, submits to the will of the Father, um, especially in his incarnation. And um, these are interesting things to realize that like, just because someone has authority, it's one of the radical teachings of the New Testament, that just because someone has authority um, doesn't mean that they're better than the people that they wield their authority over. In fact, they ought to be a servant to the ones that they are uh, in authority over. And this is, again, a godly characteristic. When people get that wrong, it's catastrophic, right? It's uh, when you're, using our authority and then of course others that don't understand that jesus is divine and he was able to say yes they think you know the, the, i'm sure you guys have heard you know oh christian theology is just cosmic child abuse you know the father like forces his son to do this jesus wasn't he, he was a willing participant uh in in the plan of salvation for for human beings uh, because of his great love for us so um again all these issues are are related to the trinity in some way uh and get back to that question of, of authority that you're asking greg so you have other thoughts on that before we well, move on so you know it's funny uh, as we were preparing for this conversation you know there were a number of emails flying back and forth and and i came to realize that i've only directly dealt with this question one time and that's joe when we were out in california witnessing um i i walked up to this homeless man um it very quickly became apparent that he, he wasn't mentally stable i don't know if that was drugs whatever um but started started sharing the gospel with him and he started screaming and yelling and, uh, you know, Jesus is a created being, uh, you know, so, um, for whatever reason, Alex and I weren't together at that point, we were normally together. And so he might've been, I don't know, he might've been 50, hundred yards away, you know, 
evangelizing somebody else, but I, I didn't stick around to argue with crazy, uh, homeless, you know, drug addicted guy. I just turned around and, and walked away. Um, but indirectly where I see this playing out so often in the church is when people want to take the God of the old Testament and the God of the new Testament, Jesus, um, and, and pit them together in such a way that they're like, well, Jesus never said not to do this. And my argument is, well, Jesus was just as much present with God in the old Testament when he was saying, thou shalt not do this thing. Uh, and, and so as you artificially try to make them gods of different portions of the Bible, uh, you're doing great uh, violence to the doctrine of the Trinity and to yeah. your, to our understanding of what's been revealed. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And uh, I think that the, um, for, you know, that uh, objection has been around for a long, long time that the, the, the God of the old Testament is this big mean God. And then the God of the new Testament is this God of love. Um, it's interesting to see like Jonah's reaction actually in the old Testament. The reason he didn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites is because you're too nice. <laughs> yeah. God's too kind and God yeah. is going to save them. He wanted judgment to come, but God was so patient and so long suffering that he was sending someone and, and, and Jonah knew if I preach to them, they're going to repent and you're going to save them because you're too good and too nice. And I don't want it. Um, and then of course, in the new Testament, we, we read passages like, um, like we read in the book of Revelation, for example, that at the end, people will be uh, asking for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the lamb. Whoa, that's, uh, that's, that's not how most people think about Jesus. So um, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, all God, all share the same characteristics, uh, the same uh, righteousness, the same holiness. They all have the same standards for those things. And um, yeah, when, when the Old Testament talks about righteousness, the New Testament talks about righteousness, they mean the same thing. These are not different standards. And the love of God uh, is evident and obvious in both. The Old Testament was pointing towards this Savior who was going to come. But remember, we don't crucify people for coming around and skipping through the daisies singing love is all you need. Uh, they crucified Jesus because he came to testify that the deeds of the world were wicked. Um, and uh, so when people are like, Jesus didn't say that, you know, he, he did. He, yeah. he was in agreement with all Jesus the was there when the, uh, when the brimstone rained upon Sodom for, mm -hmm. for their yeah. sexual sins. And so, um, you know, God doesn't delight in judgment. God does delight in saving, but if we won't repent and believe judgment is coming, uh, and Jesus will administer that wrath, uh, the, in his second coming, uh, he will, he will be the one who wages war against his enemies, but he did come first to lay down his life so that we wouldn't wouldn't have to be his enemies. Uh, so what my shirt says, be reconciled to God. That's the message of Christianity, that we can be reconciled because we are, uh, we are outside of Christ, we are enemies. So anyway, it all comes together. It all makes sense uh, when you really understand it. But of course, these, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. This is another Trinitarian type of argument, although it might not seem explicitly Trinitarian, but trying to separate these persons and make the, them at, uh, at, odds. at en enmity or odds with one another. Um, they are certainly not. So, um, well, Eric, you have any other preliminary statements or comments? Again, I'd like us to kind of get into the meat of this. We've kind of defined our terms, at least offered two different definitions. Um, I, I do want to just give a, a caution about kind of why analogies are, are dangerous, but then getting into the, the meat of, you know, seeing what the Bible says, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But you have anything else to add on this before we, uh, before we move on to the, the next part of the episode? Just a couple of brief things, uh, one of which is... You had mentioned earlier that the Trinity is not explicitly stated in one verse. 
Um, but I, I do find it interesting that there are passages that, while the Trinity is not explicitly stated, uh, it's, I think, I'll say strongly implied, or something like the Trinity is strongly implied. And uh, it's so fascinating that so many people will say, well, the Trinity is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, or any, anywhere in the Old Testament. This is just a New Testament concept. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4, uh, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, if you just read this through quickly, uh, it makes it sound as if this is just talking about uh, the kind of God that, for example, um, Islam teaches. There's just one God. And actually, this verse is often used by Muslims to disprove uh, the Trinity when they're talking to, to Christians. But that's interesting because in this verse, the word God is plural, not singular. And yet it says God is one. God is plural, and yet he's one. This sounds very Trinitarian. Well, I'll uh, back you up. I'll back you up before that, right? Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Um, sure. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I quoted this verse just because it, it, it's, it's. There's the three, or they're not three specifically, but there's plural, and then there's also one. So it's not, it's not um, inconsistent to say that God is more than one, and yet one also. Yeah. He's he's more. He's he's plural in one sense, and he's one in another sense. And so that for the people that say one plus one plus one equals one, that's how we're thinking. Well. You know, that there's there's a lot more to it than that, and it depends on what one you're talking about. Um, this this passage here clearly makes a distinction between there's there's plural God is plural, but yet He's also one. And you had mentioned Joe, and I think this this is probably the most important thing to consider when we're talking about like the authority within the Trinity. You said that Christ willingly submitted to the authority of the Father. This wasn't something that was forced on Him. And we know that because when Jesus, just prior to his arrest, he told the apostles, he said, if I want to, I, I could call uh, an army of angels uh, to come and rescue me right now. I, I have the authority to do that. I don't have to go to the cross and die. I don't have to do that. Um, but I, I am choosing to stay because I am willingly doing the Father's will. And of course, Jesus was willing to die for the sins of mankind. Uh, so it's important when we talk about the authority of the Trinity to remember that the the submission of Christ is is something that he's willing to do, not something that's being forced on him. Uh, Pastor Eric, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you. Are you saying that as a person who's studied the Bible pretty seriously for a while, that cosmic child abuse is not a fair description of what the Bible teaches? I think that's inaccurate. And um, I think it's... Uh, I, I, it almost is sounds like someone who's taken just a quick glance at the scripture without actually reading it seriously. The word you're looking for is ridiculous. Okay, I was I was trying to say it more gently, but that's that's he was saying it very say. pastorally. Yeah, pastorally, yeah. that's a pastoral response. Yeah, some pastors need to say the word ridiculous more often. Okay, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. I will uh, take that into consideration in my own ministry. Um, but uh, no, I I think that uh, uh, yeah, it's. It's it is funny. The um, uh, just backing up uh, one step, and then we'll talk about um, kind of why analogies fail. But the um, the senses with which we're talking about God in respect to being one versus 
uh, in respect to being three is important because people say that the, the Trinity is contradictory. Um, in order for something to be contradictory, it must be both A and not A at the same time and in the same sense. And so when we talk about God and we say that God is one, we're talking about one in regards to his essence, one in regards to his being. Um, so in regard to persons, uh, God is not one. So it is not saying that he is one and not one in regard to being and persons at the same time and in the same sense. In regard to persons, God is three. In regard to being, God is one. That is not the same sense. And so for those who want to conflate it, again, when they say that it's inherently contradictory, they are just exposing that they don't really understand the doctrine itself. Now, it can still be wrong. Um, I don't think it is. I believe the scriptures, so I, I believe that this is an accurate representation of God. But for those who say that it's it's definitely wrong because it's contradictory. Well, no, it isn't. You're not understanding it and you're conflating the senses and you're saying that we worship three gods, three beings. No, we don't. Or you're thinking that 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 uh, all those persons are the same person. Well, that doesn't say that either. And again, that's kind of getting back to why I was curious about that identical language because I, I don't want to define and, and blur the lines of the persons. And of course, your definition didn't do that. I just, um, and I appreciate the clarification. Many people will. There are um, versions of Trinitarian thought or that deal with the Trinity that completely blur the persons. Um, and, um, you know, to, to maintain the biblical teaching, um, at least as I understand it, we want to maintain the unity of God in being in essence while also understanding that these persons, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. These persons are distinctions that matter. Um, and so, um, in attempting, I would, I would, I would oh, just want to add, yeah, I just want to add maybe a little bit more, maybe purpose, you know, oneness and purpose, oneness and holiness. Um, just a, as I rehammer that point made before, that there aren't you know, two different standards when you when you flip from the left side to the right side. So. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask and I didn't, but I, I, do you guys have any, um, and it just reminded me because the, the most helpful discussion that I've uh, read about the Trinity is uh, Bruce Ware's book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationship, Roles, and Relevance. Um, and he made the point that you're making. Um, yeah. So I appreciate you know that, that you're bringing it up. Um, and I, I'm paraphrasing him, but um, basically everything about, you know, the persons of the Trinity is equal, identical in some form or fashion, um, but the roles that they fill are different. And so, by, because the roles are different, um, that's where we see the authority come in. Like the Father uh, has the role of being exclusively the sender, for example. Uh, Jesus has the role of coming and actually dying for the sin of the world, taking on flesh. Uh, defeating death, fulfilling the scriptures. The Holy Spirit has a, a distinct role. They don't deviate from those roles. And so the authority within the Trinitarian Godhead is part of God's eternal character and eternal nature. It's unchanging in that regard. Um, and again, he, 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 I'm possibly saying things that he would disagree with, I'm, but I, I, I found his discussion very helpful. Have you guys had other you know, resources that you thought that were, that were helpful beyond just reading the scriptures themselves that have kind of helped you to think about this doctrine more? Uh, correctly, because it is—it's a weighty thing. There's a lot of stuff that is unhelpful and muddies the waters. But I, I found that it's a pretty short book on a pretty big doctrine, and I, I found that to be um, the most helpful additional resource in my life uh, up to this point. Yeah, I can't say that I've interacted with anything in particular about about this. Um, yeah, so for me, again, because I've never had 
really to to delve into this exact you know uh, this thing in detail um just it's just been kind of in my water so i don't i don't know that i have a resource i'd be interested in looking at that book by where right on eric do you have any anything that uh, has been helpful for you you know i've read just so many different things about the trinity uh that i don't have any one particular um resource i would suggest but um there's i mean there's obviously so many resources there's books there's articles online there's um there's some very good um you know teachings lectures on the trinity i've just i've heard so many things and read so many things that i, I can't i can't really pull out one particular resource but um you know uh i'm looking forward to um to reading the book that you suggested because i think this is a subject i'm just i want to always be you know learning more about i i i don't feel like i've fully arrived as far as um understanding all the all the details of it i feel like i have a good uh, a good foundation built but obviously there's still far more i can learn do either of you, have you either of you guys ever heard of that book or have that one on your shelf by bruce ware i i don't i'll, I'll send it to you yeah, um, i don't think so i'll send it to you and uh, you know hopefully it'll be helpful for you i like i say i i uh oh you want to know what hold on he's got a <laughs> All right, you saved me like seven dollars. I'll send one yeah, to you, Eric. Yeah, right there. Um, there you so, go. A, a number of years ago, um, I had a pastor friend who retired, mm. and he said, "Hey, come, come, raid my bookshelf. Whatever you oh, want, you a, can have." Great. And so, yeah. there, most, quite a bit of that bookshelf behind me, I've never read. So, there sure. you go. Well, there you go. Well, uh, you, you go. can maybe uh, maybe bump that one to the top of the list. Like I said, I, yeah. I found it to be helpful. I'm relieved that you guys didn't say that you found the shack to be particularly illuminating. <laughs> in the you guys familiar with that one? I. I well, I've never read it, but I've tried to steer people away from it. So I read it. Heard, yeah, heard of it, but never read it. Oh, I read it, and uh, I do not recommend it. Yeah, is um, it about Shaquille O'Neal? <laughs> that'd be better. I'd rather read a book about Shaquille O'Neal than read The Shack again, to be honest. Uh, um, yeah, so the The Shack uh, is a, uh, in my opinion, a uh, deeply flawed um, uh, model and uh, woefully inadequate in um, expressing the. Uh, the truth of the Trinity, although many people have read it and thought that that really helped them to understand. That's a good segue into um, uh, why analogies fail. Uh, have you guys ever encountered an analogy that you said, that's a good one, I'm going to use this? Um, and if not, why not? Never. Every analogy, yeah, every analogy I've heard or you know seen, it, because it falls apart so quickly, because it trespasses into um, heretical ways of looking at it it's you, you can't use them without multiple warnings you know handle with care don't take this too far so it, they fall apart pretty quickly eric you don't i when i when i gave my sermon on this topic a few years ago i'm i i think i if i remember right i think i made the point that no analogy is adequate to uh to really you know express the truth of the trinity and i just basically said, avoid them all. Um, that was my advice. So all analogies break down somewhere. I mean, that's something that we've said on this show before. Why is it particularly dangerous for the Trinity to try and use an analogy? Like, I mean, Greg, you use the word even, they move into heresy. Yeah. Um, why? Um, well, I mean, I, I think the, the underlying why is because, well, because of God's holiness, he is distinct and different and this is one of the most clear ways that he's distinct and different. So trying to liken it onto something else is is violating who God is. And so, yeah, they they all fall apart 
Um, and again, it's it's when I say heresy, I mean one of one of the traditional historical heresies that um, the church has dealt with in its past and and labeled as absolutely incorrect and not a way of thinking modalism and uh, you know, for instance. So, so I, I think God's holiness is when we talk about the holiness of God, what we often mean is how righteous he is. And, that, and that's not how I'm using that word right now. I, I mean it, God's difference. He is unlike any created thing, even any spiritual being, right? He, he's not like the angels. He's, he's just as, says, he's different from angels as he's different from man. Um, and, and so just because we're not spiritual beings um, t- doesn't make us more or less close to who God is. And so, yeah, the, the analogies quickly, quickly slide into wrong thinking. The, theologians use, you know, big words sometimes, of course, but um, uh, there are, uh, if you like to read systematic theologies, communicable, communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes, which is a fancy way of saying that there are ways that God is um, like us and that we are like God. And then there are other ways that God is just completely and wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely different or set apart. And so as you're uh, using holy in that sense, this is one of those areas that he is just, there is nothing like him. And so to attempt to use anything in the world, uh, when I was a brand new Christian, I thought, I thought I figured it out. I was like, oh, God is like, he's like H2O. H2O is God. And then, you know, modalism. Yeah. Yep. I found out <laughs> later. Oh, that's, yeah, that's not right. Um, I tried to cling to it for a little while. Um, but then, you know, you hear like, okay, I see why that's, I see why that's a problem. Um, and, um, you know, people come up with all sorts of different ones, the sun and the heat and the light and all this kind of stuff. And again, they're all very dangerous. I think St. Patrick with his three, three leaf clover, uh, he had, uh, you know, used that as a, a way of teaching these things. Um, Eric, like you, I would urge people to resist, uh, using any analogies, uh, and, uh, in any official teaching, I think it's, it, we do well to, um, warn people even, I mean, you know, heresy is a, a, a big word, but you're right. These historical heresies that are thrown around, Greg. All of them, every analogy that exists ends up devolving into one of those. We're just, we're just better off to just um, affirm what the scripture says. There's one God, and the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So uh, unless you guys have anything else, why don't we get into that? Um, uh, if making the case for the Father being God is probably the easiest case, the least controversial, um, uh, even amongst you know, skeptics, I guess, they would say, okay, well, you believe in God. We're talking about the father, I guess. Um, it's a little bit more complicated to make the case that Jesus is God. That's at least more hotly debated by, by many. And uh, certainly the personality and divinity of the Holy Spirit as well. Um, but where would you guys start if you're trying to, again, explain this to somebody. We've got the concept. We're, we're going to avoid analogies because those are dangerous. How, what, what would you, is there like a verse you would go to to say, you know, show that the father is God, a series of verses? Would you just, you know, very Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God, there, there we go. Uh, Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I mean, I okay. I would just say the Bible start mm. start start there, Genesis one one. You know, Isaiah forty three ten. Just one example. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. So God is saying, I am the one true God. I am the only God. Um, Isaiah forty five five is another one. Um, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. 
And if you go just a few verses later to Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So again, it's just over and over again, um, this is stated. Now, it's important though to, to recognize that when you jump to the New Testament, it's not as if all of a sudden people are polytheistic. They're not. Because, for example, um, uh, Paul, while Paul, I think, used some of the most explicit, uh, I'll say, Trinitarian language in his epistles, he also was very explicit that there is one God. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, um, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. And in verse 6, he went on to say, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, and from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom we are all, uh, whom are all things, and we exist through him. James says um, in James 2.19, uh, there is one God. So the, the Old Testament maintains that there is one God. Okay, We would say the Father is God. Um, there's no disagreement about that. Um, but some people think, well, the, you know, the, 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 when you get to the New Testament, everybody's like, um, of course, this is a, a false claim. Now they're polytheistic because now they're saying, well, Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. No, in the New Testament, it's still maintained that there is only one God. Yeah, some of my favorite verses for, or, you know, proof texts for God the Father come out of the new testament where you know that booming voice from heaven saying you know this is my son well that's why part of the reason why maybe we need to define modalism right like, you know god's either the son or the father or the spirit um you, you have the father declaring that as he as he stands over the son and you know christ declaring the 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 godship of of the father yeah, um i'm sure that modalists would have some explanation for that. I've never heard sure, one. Have, they, any, sure they have do. any of you no, guys I've... ever heard a modalistic explanation for how the Father could be speaking from heaven and the Holy Spirit could be alighting on the, 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 the shoulder of the Son in the form of a dove, how we could see all three persons of the Trinity at one time? Like, have you experience, ever talked to I mean, a see, but experience. Yeah. No, I, I've, I, don't, I don't know that I've met a, a serious modalist. Mo Eric, mostly accident, accidentally mo accidental modalists more than sure purposeful yeah um so you know i i'm sure that there is some answer for for that but uh but that is probably the most um distinct passage for me as well greg that that is why i can't be a modalist um i i just you see all three persons at the same time simultaneously um and there are many passages like that. We don't always see all three persons at the same time, but uh, especially the father and the son interacting with each other uh, and, and many, many passages. Um, so and the son um, sending the spirit and exactly. Yes. So, um, so it is interesting to, that as we think about this, um, of course, the, the old Testament scriptures um, and the new Testament scriptures are consistent that the father is God. Um, do you guys think it's fit? I mean, this, this particular God, it's not that other cultures didn't believe in gods, but the distinction is that those aren't really gods, that those are figments of, of people's imaginations, they're idols, either work of men's hands. Um, but this is the true and living God, and, and the Bible tells us his name. Um, in Hebrew, it's the, the, the four letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. Um, some people uh, translate it that as Jehovah. Others say Yahweh. 
Um, of course, the, the declarations of Moses in uh, Exodus 3, um, I am who I am. And so we, we get these divine names. Of course, there are other names of God in scripture. Oh, I got a video on our channel of, of many divine names. But the, the, the main um, characteristic, this is Yahweh uh, or I am. These, these names and titles are important. Um, Lord, Savior. Um, because then as we move into the New Testament to see there's always been this belief in one God. This is the God that we're talking about. Then to see, uh, as we talk about the Son, the ease with which uh, these New Testament authors are beginning to apply those same terms to the Son. Um, and that is shocking language. It's, it's in fact why, um, you know, it's one of the major stumbling blocks that, that people had, particularly Jews in, in believing, is that this Messiah wasn't just a human being, but was in fact God in the flesh. And um, uh, if that's not true, that's blasphemy. Um, of course, if it is true, then we ought to accept it and, and worship uh, worship the Messiah. So um, any other things that need to be said about the, I mean, the Father being God is the easiest case, but uh, any, you guys disagree with anything that I'm saying? Is there anything unfair in that? Or um, if if we're in full agreement, are we ready to move on to then kind of making the more, maybe the more controversial case that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is uh, God in the fullest sense of the term? No, I, I'm all set. Yep, let's, uh, let's tackle that. All right, well, Eric, you, uh, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, I'm going to have to give you the super abbreviated version. I sent you guys my notes earlier uh, this, this week, and uh, you know my note on this is, is pretty long. Um, so I'm just going um, to just narrow it down just a few passages. But uh, one passage that, uh, that comes to my mind is uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, uh, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Uh, if, if Jesus is with them and God is with them, um, it, it, it sounds as if, uh, it sounds like as if he's, they're saying, in some unique sense, Jesus, or I should say God, is with us through in Jesus. Um, oh my goodness, I'm looking through the text. There's just, um, there's just so many. Um, let me point out something that is not an explicit statement, but it's something that uh, we see uh, several times um, in, in the Gospels. I'm going to focus just on the Gospels for the moment. Um, throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus accepted worship from his disciples. For example, in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 33, um, it says, uh, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Um, and we can talk about, and we've kind of already talked about what it means to be God's son, but we'll talk, we can talk more about that um, later on too. Uh, but now this is interesting because if you remember Jesus' conversation with Satan, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus explicitly told Satan, he said, you are to worship God and him only. And yet Jesus accepted worship from his disciples. He did this again in Matthew 28, 9. He did it again in Matthew 28, 17. And not only that, but if you look in Revelation, 
Revelation chapter 5, Jesus actually was accepting worship from the elders in heaven, um, according to Revelation 5.14. So Jesus was accepting worship on earth. He was also accepting worship uh, in heaven by uh, the elders there. That's, that is uh, pretty important, given the fact that Jesus himself said that only God is to be worshipped, and yet he accepted worship himself. So this happens multiple times uh, in Scripture. Now I want to just point out just something that's um, something that uh, people have, um, I guess, wondered about, or maybe maybe they use it as a criticism. They say, well, in the Gospels, it's not as clear that Jesus is God. And actually, I've heard Muslims say Jesus never claimed to be God um, in. Uh, in the Gospels. Well, I believe, of course, I believe he did. I believe he did on um, a few different occasions. But even if, even, if that's, even if it's not as clear in the Gospels, you have to remember that in the Gospels, there is truth that's unfolding. There's new, uh, I, I'll say, ideas uh, that are being revealed. And I don't, I don't want to say um, ideas that weren't known at all, because I believe the Trinity is found in the Old Testament. I think there's actually really there's some very uh, very good case to be made that the Trinity is in the Old Testament, but I think that this this idea was sort of being more fully revealed in the in the New Testament, and particularly like in the Gospels, I, I think it's it's not as um, explicit as, for example, in Paul's letters, um, even though it's it's I, still pre- present I don't, there. I don't know how you can read uh, the Gospel according to John. With with any sort of seriousness, any sort of uh, correspondence to what the text says, and not come away with the idea that that Christ is is divine, that Christ is God. I totally agree. Yeah. I I mean, so agree. so to say that the, it's not present in the Gospels, you know, perhaps Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, aren't going out of their way to make that case. But I believe John is going out of the way. To make that case, um, and is easily shown oh, from that from that oh, I agree. gospel. Yeah, I, I think like I said, I would I, think I would just add one one other caveat. I think the more familiar that you are with the Old Testament scriptures, the more clearly Jesus is claiming to be God on a yeah, regular absolutely. basis. Sure, um, sure. And so many modern readers, especially if you're hearing this objection from a, a Muslim, I wouldn't expect them to be experts in the in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, many modern readers as well do not understand. Um, Part of the reasons why the, the Pharisees were so irate with Jesus all the time, um, and I know you know Eric, I, in your notes you you made some of this like when he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, like that's such a, an audacious statement that to modern readers we go, well, he doesn't say I am God. You're right; those aren't the words that he says, but it's basically the equivalent for Jesus sure. to claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, for Jesus to claim that he can he has the authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. Um, these are these are as clear of a statement of divinity as, as could be. And they, they're found in all of them. But yes, John really doubles down on the language for sure. Just, and, a, just the preamble of John, yeah. right? Read, read chapter yeah. one of John. Oh, for sure. And take into account what is being said, and there's no way to deny the divinity of, of Christ. Sure. And I, I, I fully agree that— oh, I know you're you not can, disagreeing. <laughs> you, can, you can have—if if you just had the Gospels, you could know just from that— uh, in my opinion, you can know from that very easily, especially like you said, the Gospel of John, that Jesus was claiming to be God in his in his God. Um, 
I just I, I only point that out because I've heard people say, well, this isn't really as explicit in the Gospels as it is, for example, in, in Paul's letters. Well, as you said, Joe, and correctly, yeah, for the modern reader, for the modern 21st century American reader, that I, I think there may be some truth to that. But Jesus uh, is did claim to be God in the Gospels. He is said to be God in different ways. And um, I just, I think that's, like you guys already said, I think that's that's very clear. Um, you know, and Greg already got into John. He's talking about, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Was, was God, yeah. And so I, I would point this out, too, because I've heard um, certain groups say that God there, when it says was God, the word God is without the definite article, the. And because it doesn't have the definite article, Jesus wasn't, it doesn't say that Jesus was the God, but Jesus was simply a God among, you know, <laughs> So like, we're, he was a lesser we're, we're, being. De- we're departing from monotheism and going to polytheism and Christ is claiming to be one of the polytheistic gods. Yeah, I mean, the argument definitely does break down rather rather quickly. Yeah, that's what that's what the yeah. claim is. But I would yeah. I would point out that John there 10, are, 30, I and the fa- I and I and the Father are one. Um yes. so, yeah. But I I would point out that there are a hundred examples in the New Testament where the one true God is used without the definite article. Uh, scholars uh, agree on this. This is not, I don't think it's even debated. Um, so just because John chapter one doesn't use the definite article, doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't mean there that Jesus is not uh, the one true God. So that, that does not prove anything. It's one of the, that is uh, maybe something that uh, requires just a little bit more conversation. Um, and, yeah, this this gets thrown around a lot, unfortunately, because most people don't, you know, they haven't studied Greek or something like that. They uh, they, you know, they, they're easily persuaded by this, or, or and because the Trinity is hard to understand, it can be easy to give up doctrines that you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, I've had you know friendly folks knock on my door and 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 try and explain to me how John one one is mistranslated and how they have the more accurate translation, and it should be in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, and it's lowercase G, and it's because it lacks the definite article and I've even asked some of those friendly folks, um, oh, do you, do you know Greek? And uh, um, in some cases, I'm not saying that they would all do this, but the ones that have knocked on my door, they will say yes. Um, and then when I quote that verse to them, um, you guys are very inconsistent. In RK, not article, there's no article here, but it's not in a beginning, you translated it in the beginning. And then it says, Hologos um, in prostontheon was with the God, but you don't translate it was with the God, you just say was with God. Um, and then this other existence of God, and now it's a God. Like when there's no article, you translate it with the article, and then when there is one, you get rid of it. And then in this one, even though in the the clause immediately before they're saying there is only one Theos, there's only one God, the Theos. Now this is a Theos. Like what? Yeah, what are what are we even talking about? That's the most inconsistent way of translating this, uh, and it, it it shows a complete lack of awareness of how the Greek language even works. And of course, it's, I've had some people say, oh, I don't actually know Greek. I'm like, oh, okay, well, then I don't know why you're saying that you do. I guess most people that you knock on their door, they've never studied this verse before. They've never looked into this thing before, and they're just going to believe whatever you tell them. Um, but it's not only inconsistent with, I mean, Eric, you said it, with 
hundreds of other uses in the New Testament. It's inconsistent with the verse itself, <laughs> with the one verse, um, because they don't say in a beginning, but there's no article there. And they don't say was with, was with the God, although that would be the most direct translation. And so it's just, it's preposterous, the, the lengths that people will go to try and avoid the, uh, the sentiment that is just very clearly being expressed. Not only was Jesus existing all the way back in the beginning, uh, but he was with God, a, dis a distinction of persons, and he is God, unity in essence. There's only one God. Uh, John 1, 1 couldn't be more clear. And then this entity, the Logos, uh, tabernacled among us uh, later in the chapter, became a man, uh, and that fulfillment of uh, where you kind of started us off, became God with us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, uh, so it's... Sure. Again, maybe we lost some of the readers there, but it is. It gets thrown around about these translational notes, and well, it sounds it sounds like really intellectual. But the, the fact of the matter is that you really you really do need to know that if you're going to make a case for the Trinity, understand the Trinity, because these things do come up, and they come up often in conversations about the Trinity. And if you jump to Paul's letters, um, and I know I like I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my super abbreviated version of this because my note is very very long, and I can't go over all the verses. I just want to go over some of the key texts. Um, Paul says in Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And when he says all the fullness, he means it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ. That is, in, in, in the physical body. He says again in uh, Colossians 2.9, for in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form which means Jesus isn't part God. He's fully God. All the fullness of deity is, dwells in, in, in his human body. So Jesus is fully, completely God. Um, and in, uh, in the book of Philippians, and maybe Philippians is possibly one of the most, again, it's, it's a very, very... Uh, I'll just, if I, if I could just interject, you, you quoted first, or you uh, quoted Colossians 1, uh, 19, but let's just back up to verse 15. Um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations, for by him all things were created, both in, in heaven and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authority. So I mean, we, we could, it's, yeah, it, it's there. <laughs> if, if Jesus is the creator of all things. Of all things, yeah, yeah. All th by him all things were created, both invisible and, and visible, so. Right. And that means, yeah. so everywhere else, the Bible says God created everything. And then Paul says, let me be more specific. Jesus created everything. Because God is, of course, kind of a general or more of a uh, indefinite uh, term. Um, Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, and most, most uh, scholars say that's, that's essence. Uh, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So right there, he's, it says, prior to being a man, first of all, Jesus existed. But not only did he exist before being a man, he existed in the form of God. He, had, he existed as God. Um, so that it's, it's not like when Jesus became a man, he came into existence. He existed before that. Uh, John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. 
he says, uh, he talks about the, the glory that he had with the Father prior to his earthly existence. So uh, there should be no debate among anybody that Jesus existed before he um, became a man. But even more than that, he existed in the form of God, according to Paul. And I want to just point out one other text. And I know, I know I'm, I'm going over this really quickly, and there's, I mean, numerous texts on this. But I want to just briefly touch on um, Titus. Titus chapter 2, um, verse 13. And I, I'm going to touch on this verse because the context um, makes it, I think, really strong that, that this is talking about um, Jesus' divinity. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, why is this important? Because if you look at the context, Jesus is the only one mentioned. He's the only one in view. So when Paul says, um, he says, he's God and our Savior. Remember, God the Father, specifically, he's not, he's not mentioned there. It says, God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person that's mentioned. And Paul says that, that one person is God or is, is our God and Savior. That's further that's reinforced in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from law, every lawless deed. You know, God the Father did not give himself for us right. to redeem us. God the, God the Son, Christ Jesus, gave himself for exactly. us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Yeah, because some non-Trinitarians will say, well, like cause sometimes God the Father will be in the verse with Jesus, and they'll say, well, God means the God the Father, not, not Jesus there. You can't use that argument here because Jesus is the only one mentioned uh, in the text and in the context. So uh, this, this seems to be strong evidence that Jesus is none other than God, God and Savior. So as far as like, that's my very short abbreviated case, uh, numerous other texts that could be used, but I want to, we'll, we'll keep this, um, we'll try and keep this podcast to two and a half, three hours. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Greg, would you have uh, any additional things to add? Because again, Eric, you're certainly you're correct. I mean, we could we could go on and on and on. Uh, we could make video after video about this. Um, this is one of those areas where there's just an embarrassment of riches. I think of of proving um, from the from the Bible itself that um, uh, from beginning to end, um, the divinity of the Son is being declared. Um, and I do mean that even in the Old Testament, uh, your your case was focusing primarily. Not exclusively, but primarily on uh, New Testament references, um, and it does become more clear. But um, I, I want—I have a couple of just passages from the Old Testament that I want us to talk about. But Greg, you have anything uh, that you would add, or? or um, uh, well, I, I would say this. I mean, we of course we could we could continue to go over and over every every verse um, that, that clearly communicates this. But I'll make a an extra biblical argument um, if Christ was not divine, if Christ was not perfect, if he was not God, uh, his sacrifice wouldn't be sufficient to expiate your sins. You, it, it, His blood would not be valuable enough um, to, to, to pay for the sins of all people. Um, it, that fact in and of itself ought to be enough to convince you of who Christ is. Certainly, that's uh, you know that's another objection that people hear. Like, how could one man's temporary suffering 
on the cross pay for the sins of uh, countless not others. Just one man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This uh, it's the, the God. The value of that one man is uh, worth more than uh, everything else. And so, um, uh, yeah, in the um, a couple of passages that I want to just point out, um, in addition to everything that you said, because Eric, I, I just I'll say amen to everything that you stated and. You know, I did read through the notes that you sent. Obviously, I know that you can make a longer case and, and have, in fact, done so. Um, there's a couple of passages that over time um, kind of have stood out to me that I just I want to submit for mutual edification, I guess, and for anybody who's watching. Um, there's a, a all throughout the Gospels, Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself is as the Son of Man. Uh, he uses that title more than than any other. And um, many people think that the Son of Man terminology is a declaration of his humanity, um, that the Son of God language is a declaration of his divinity. However, um, there is a sense in which it it's actually could be understood in the reverse, um, that the Son of God language goes back to, uh, we, we've talked about this, uh, the passage in um, uh, 2 Samuel 7. Um, is it 1 Samuel 7 or 2 Samuel 7? Um, I tell you, my, my brain doesn't work sometimes. Um, Probably, I'm guessing second, if you're talking about uh, the Davidic covenant. Yeah, so uh, this this language of, um, you know, God will be a, uh, a father uh, to this son of David. Um, and so there's this son of God language. And that is actually talking about this human messianic figure. Um, and then uh, the son of man language is actually referring to a different passage uh, to Daniel chapter 7 in this vision that Daniel saw. And one of the interesting things about that vision in Daniel chapter 7 is that you see the Ancient of Days, which is fairly universally understood as God the Father, and then this human figure that walks up to the Ancient of Days and receives from the Father a kingdom and receives glory. And so Daniel, of course, is writing after the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says that, um, you know, we, we just had a conversation about glorification. And Greg, I, I think you had some really good uh, clarifying comments. God has glory, and he glorifies his people by him being a part of his people. Um, it's God's glory, and by him being part of the nation of Israel, they are glorified by God's glory being among them. Um, in the New Testament, God's glory is now shared with us, but not shared in the sense that we're glorious apart from God, but glorious because God's glory in and of himself is now with us. Um, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us as the, the temple in the new covenant. But this Daniel 7 son of man figure is given glory by the Father, given glory by the Ancient of Days, which is seemingly in violation of the fact that God will give his glory to none other. And similarly, in, uh, you, Eric, you mentioned some passages in, in uh, Revelation. In the book of Revelation chapter 4, all of creation is basically praising God the Father and then in chapter five, there's this amazing shift that happens that now everybody begins praising the sun. How unnatural and inappropriate that would be if the sun was not God. Like for, for everybody, could you imagine being in a worship service where everybody stops worshiping and praising God and begins worshiping something lesser? That just doesn't make any sense. Um, so I don't know if you've ever thought much about that, but the, that idea, it hit me one time, just kind of like, uh, like, wow, God the Father is giving to this son of man. Uh, this human figure, glory, there's no way to understand that without realizing that this this figure must be himself divine, because otherwise he would not be worthy of receiving glory uh, from from God. 
have you, again, is that an observation you've made or, or if not, as I'm saying it, does that strike you as correct or, or do you think I'm thinking wrongly about that? No, I, I think one of the most yeah, beautiful displays of this idea is that Revelation 4, Revelation 5. Hmm. Um, when you think of, you know, a, a, a God, God who has declared himself to be a jealous God with whom he will, he will not share his glory. Uh, well, you could argue he is well he is with himself within the within the the trinitarian godhead he he glorifies the son it would be absolutely inappropriate to exalt anyone to the, any man any being not god as he exalts uh, christ there in chapter 5 of revelation as all the earth every every created thing in on the earth in the sea they are all turning their eyes to the lamb would be absolutely inappropriate if it weren't for Christ's divinity. Yeah, I I, I think he stated it very well. So um, uh, I was going to get Eric's thoughts, but he disappeared on us. He just left. He's he did. Are you thinking of up. something I said or what? Well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, uh, one other passage from the Old Testament that, uh, again, struck me um, just in its, uh, again, amazing profound uh, declaration is in the book of Malachi. Um, and of course, Malachi is the, uh, the last prophet uh, that is uh, writing and speaking. Uh, you're back. Uh, was, it, was it something I said? We can't hear you. Oh yeah, you lost your mic, brother. See if we can unmute you here. I actually like this better. <laughs> You still can't hear you, bro. Check your connection at the back of your mind. I think we got you now. I can hear me now. We can. Uh, yep. Okay. Right. Bummer, huh? I'm Was so it sorry. To, it's good to have you back. Did you, uh, have you thought much about, um, we were just talking about uh, the vision in Daniel chapter seven of the son of man receiving glory, um, which again is a statement really of like only a divine figure could receive glory from God because God will not share his glory with someone else. And then a similar type of um, description in, in Revelation 4 and 5, when all of heaven is worshiping the Lord, the Father. Chapter 5, they start worshiping the Son. They start paying attention to this lamb. Completely inappropriate if, if, if the Son is not God. Do um, you have any thoughts on that before? I, again, I had one other passage from the Old Testament that I wanted to, to look at. But um, any thoughts on that? Or is that uh, anything sound wrong in that? Is that not a good uh, uh, passage to include in our understanding that the Son is divine? I think it's a good passage. I think it's it's appropriate. Uh, remember, all throughout the Old Testament, God said you're to worship me alone. You're not to worship anybody else. It's mm -hmm. me alone. And if if the beings in heaven, if the people in heaven are worshiping the Lamb, a.k.a. Christ, then that would imply that Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how else to take it because worship is a very distinct thing. It's not just, it's not simply just paying honor. Worship is acknowledging that that this is God. Mm -hmm. who, who you're worshiping is God. So by worshiping the lamb, they're basically saying we acknowledge that you are God. Yeah. And I, I, I don't I don't know how else to take it. Yeah. So for the Father to share honor, glory, and worship with the Son freely, this figure, this Son of Man figure from Daniel 7, um, who that's a, a vision of 
Christ ascending and, and being exalted, something that we're seeing again in Revelation, when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man over and over and over again, um, I believe that there's more theological significance to that, that he is in fact declaring himself to be this divine figure who will walk up to the throne of heaven and take his rightful seat at the right hand of the father and receive honor and glory even from the father and be one who's, uh, who the father is pleased to share worship with, although he would never do that with any other mere human being. Isaiah's not going to be sitting up there. Daniel's not going to be sitting up there. Like no prophet, Moses won't be up there. Only the son, the divine son could possibly uh, take that place. So, um, so that's a, a pretty significant passage. Another one is here in Malachi chapter uh, three. And it's interesting uh, to, to kind of look at the, the pronouns here. I just want to look at this one verse. I just want to read it. Malachi 3, one says, behold, I, this is God, uh, Yahweh uh, speaking, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, or says Yahweh uh, of armies. Um, it's very interesting to see this passage, to see that, all right, the messenger, um, according to the New Testament, is John the Baptist, who comes and clears the way. He's the forerunner. But God, Yahweh, says, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So Yahweh says, I'm, I'm coming. It's me, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Um, but then it says, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. There's a change of person. Of course, the temple is God's temple. But so now we see, so God is coming. God is coming to my temple, his temple. So we see again a, 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 a unity in being. This is Yahweh who is coming, but also a distinction in person. And so um, I just, uh, again, this was another one of those passages um, that, that hit me. And I, you know, I had already believed in the divinity of the Son, but I was like, wow, what an astonishing statement, even in the Old Testament, that um, we see a distinction in person, but a clear distinct, that when Jesus claims to be this one, the fulfillment of this passage, he's saying, I'm I am God. This, I, this is my temple. I came to my temple because I am Yahweh. I am the Lord of the covenant whom you're seeking. So uh, again, to, to have this awareness of what the prophets were saying about this one who was to come, for Jesus to claim to be the fulfillments of those things, he is claiming to be God as explicitly as possible, in my opinion. Is this a passage that you guys have thought about much? And um, again, do you think I'm interpreting that incorrectly? Or is there any other insight that you would have? Uh, again, my my main point is it's clearly God speaking. God says that he is coming, but then there's also a change in person. And so I do, again, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here, but Father and Son, at least uh, explicitly in the text uh, in this Old Testament prophet. Yeah. Amen. Sounds good to me. Right on. So, um, you know, again, all of us could have many other passages that we would go to, but let's move on from making our positive case um, and think about some of the objections that we've heard. Uh, Eric, I think in what you were saying, um, and, uh, you know, just kind of as you were making your case, if, if everything you're saying was accurate, I agreed with it. It seemed like Greg agreed with it as well. Um, just in what you were saying, um, it would eliminate really any ability for someone to say, all right, if this is true, then to think that Jesus became God at some point, um, even the fuller uh, passage that you read, the rest of uh, Colossians, for example, uh, you know, Greg, when you backed up a few verses and, and we're reading that, um, Jesus existed from the very beginning as God from the very beginning is being attributed with the, the very acts and works of God himself. Um, 
But there are some who would say that, well, okay, God the Father created Jesus. Jesus is the first created being. And then this first created being does everything else. Nothing that was said, um, I guess, explicitly contradicts that. I guess I suppose that if in the beginning God creates Jesus first and then Jesus creates everything else after that, all of those things would still be true. How would you interact with a statement like that um, and and deal with something like that? Because I think we all explicitly disagree with that. Um, But that's a a common objection that I've heard, that Jesus is this first created being. Uh, What say you guys? And that was what the crazy homeless guy on Venice Beach was screaming at me as I was getting away as quick as I could. Sure. Um, This is not a view that is exclusive to uh, (laughs) uh, mentally unstable uh, homeless people, though. But prevalent, as it turns out. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. Are we talking about um, uh, the firstborn of all creation, or are we talking about um, just the idea that Jesus, just this, just the general idea that Jesus uh, is supposedly a created being? Uh, so I think that those are related, um, and you can you can feel free to interact with that however you'd like. I know I've heard people talk about um, uh, the personification of wisdom, for example, as being the first of God's creations, and that seemingly is you know some people I think think that that's Jesus. Um, which is not a view that's very uh, tenable in my my mind, but I've I've heard that um, certainly the the firstborn language people do interpret that to think that he is the first created. Um, um, of course, that's not what it says. It says firstborn. So um, I think that these are related arguments. I, there probably is some nuanced difference, but again, you can interact with it however however you'd like because I I do think that those things get m- kind of muddled together often in this type of an objection. Oh, for sure. Yeah, well, let me first say that um, I guess I'll just kind of go in order. Yeah, when I read uh, Colossians, I think I started at one uh, one nineteen. I really should have read 15 all the way through 20, um, so I dropped the ball there. You're forgiven. But I appreciate that, Greg. appreciate your great mercy. Um, <laughs> but uh, in, in verse 15, this is an important verse, important important Trinity verse. He is the image of the invisible God, uh, the firstborn of all creation. Um, now, uh, firstborn kind of throws people off because it's absolutely true that in some places, firstborn can mean firstborn chronologically, which would suggest that Jesus had a beginning, if that's what Paul meant, if Paul meant that Jesus was the firstborn chronologically, then Trin- the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity ceases to be true. Uh, but it's interesting because uh, first or firstborn uh, doesn't always mean this. For example, Israel uh, was is described as the firstborn son of God in Exodus 4.22, and yet everybody knows Israel was not the first nation. So firstborn in Exodus 4.22 can't mean first chronologically. It would have to mean firstborn in some other sense. In Shimri, son of Hosa, it said, the Bible says he was the first, although he was not the firstborn, his father made him first. And that's First Chronicles 26.10. He wasn't the firstborn. He, was, he wasn't born first chronologically, but yet his father gave him the, uh, I'm, I'm assuming the uh, inheritance rights or the, the rights of a firstborn son. David was the youngest in his family, but God promised to make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, Psalm 89, 27. So uh, there's, these are three examples where 
firstborn doesn't mean first chronologically. It means that these uh, Israel and these these men were made firstborn in terms of their position. They were put, they were placed in a position that they um, were not naturally in. And Paul, uh, going back to Colossians 1, Paul later speaks of Christ as the firstborn from the dead. That's Colossians 1.18, even though Christ was not the first to be raised from the dead. So what does firstborn mean? Well, the word um, often refers to one who is highest in rank or position. So I believe Christ is the firstborn in the sense that he has first place in everything. And that's what Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.18. And, and Christ also has the inheritance rights of a firstborn son. We know that Psalm 2.8 says that, Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1.2. So um, Jesus, I believe, uh, based on these other texts, Jesus, he was made the firstborn um, and he, because he has first place in everything. He, he's, he has the highest rank and because he, he's, he was given the inheritance rights of a firstborn uh, son. And in Colossians 1.16, Paul said that Jesus is the creator of all things. Now, if you read that very quickly, I think you, you, miss, you miss the point. Obviously, we've already made the point that God is the creator of all things. And if Jesus created all things, then Jesus can rightly be assumed to be God. Um, but if you read Colossians 1.17 very carefully, it says that Christ is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now, that Christ is before all things is another way of saying that he, he's eternal. And I want you to consider this, this, this argument. If Christ came into existence, he did so from nothing, because nothing existed before him, according to Colossians 1.17. But something can't come into existence from nothing, so Jesus must necessarily be eternal. And if he's eternal then he must be God, because God, by definition, uh, is eternal. And the, the text also says that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. It says, in him all things hold together. Christ not only created all things, but he also upholds all things, or we could say sustains all things by the power, uh, by his own power. That's Hebrews 1.3. And, and if all this wasn't enough, Paul goes on to say even more in Colossians 1.19, he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And this was the fullness of deity, according to Colossians 2.9. So, I say all that to make the point that firstborn in Colossians 1.15 cannot mean first created or first chronologically. The context obliterates that interpretation. And it makes it impossible to, for me to believe. So you have um, you have Christ. Uh, you have the fact that firstborn doesn't always mean first uh, created or, or first chronologically. Uh, Christ is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He is before all things, and he is the fullness of God in bodily form. So I look at all that and I think, wow. Um, Jesus must be God. That must be the point that Paul is making here. And, and to, to take firstborn as meaning first created or first chronologically is to completely and totally overlook everything Paul said 
in the context. And I think that's a really unwise uh, thing to do. I want to disagree, or excuse me, I want to agree with much of what you said, but I do want to disagree slightly. Maybe it's worth talking about. Uh, my agreement is, yeah, to to talk about Christ as firstborn and swap out born with the idea of created it is just a, a I mean, the, the, the biblical authors could have easily have said, first created, if they meant first created. We don't think of Adam as being born. Adam was created. And so why would we, why would we, why would we take a term like firstborn and assume first created? Um, so that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. So, um, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you that firstborn there should be understood as in preeminence, um, the inheritor, the, the the primary um, inheritor of things where I will disagree is the firstborn from the dead. Um, I, I take that to mean the first to have risen to the, from the dead, receiving their imperishable uh, resurrected body that, that we will all look forward to someday. So that, and again, maybe you would even affirm that, but I totally agree. Yep. Yeah. That, so when I read firstborn there, I I don't interpret it as a preeminence, but as being the first one born to receive that new fleshly body. I'm in and, full and maybe, agreement. And maybe yep. I don't have a good reason for that, but that's how I do it. Well, so. actually, the Bible says that elsewhere. Um, it says in in First Corinthians 15, Paul was uh, not Paul, but uh, Jesus was raised uh, to immortality. The, the Bible yeah. says that consistently, and Jesus. Um, it says Jesus was the first fruits in that sense. He was the first to be raised to immortality. So, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and when I said firstborn from the dead, um, I just made, I just said that to make the point that first firstborn, yeah, Jesus is was first in the sense that he was the first to be raised in that unique way. But but first doesn't mean he was the first to ever be raised. Period. That was the only point that I was I was trying to make. No, do you? Well, yeah, first to be raised, yeah, first to be raised immortal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, many people uh, have either been taught or they they don't take into the take into account the greater context. But I mean, all the examples that you gave, um, you know, I, I, I read firstborn from the dead, the same way Greg's articulating and we're all in agreement now as we put it out on the table. Um, but if we leave that, uh, that particular element out, David, the nation of Israel, um, very clearly demonstrate that to say firstborn is not the same as first created. So to use that, to say that Jesus is the first created being is just, it's a poor argument. Um, certainly it convinces some, um, those who, uh, do not hold to the eternality of the sun. You know, it's convincing to them, but um, you know, we're we're all in agreement on that. Um, what would you say about the the figure of personified wisdom, uh, particularly like in the Book of Proverbs, talking about that being the first created? Um, you know, some people say that that's Jesus. Have you ever heard that argument before? Is that something that, that yeah, you've heard? I've heard the argument. I, I definitely don't find it convincing. Um, as far as I'm concerned, wisdom is an attribute of God. I don't I don't believe God created wisdom um he is wise and so i i see that as a uh, poetic literary tool um much the way personification is used in so many other ways it, it's not a 
Um, she was there with God, meaning she, she was an attribute of God in the personification. Yeah. And um, for someone to take that any um, in any other way than just wisdom, um, I think is a mistake that the, this that's from Proverbs chapter eight. And it says, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? This is personification. This is non-literal language. Wisdom doesn't talk. Understanding doesn't do one thing or another. These are things that people possess. You, you possess. Wrong. Because she, she talks. She talks about their being, being with God in the beginning. No, I think that's in Proverbs eight. I think it's. I think what. That's what you're referring to, Joe, right? It's Proverbs chapter eight. Yeah, I mean it. The, uh, certainly that is a big aspect. I'm sure that people who make this may, might have other, um, but yeah, Proverbs 8 is definitely uh, the the forefront of my mind when I think of, of these types oh, of I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way uh, before his works of old. Is, is, it, verse 22 is what I was thinking of, of chapter 8. Yeah, and possessed doesn't mean came into being. I mean, possessed, I mean, Possessed right there seems to mean it, it, it's it's an eternal. This is an eternal attribute of God. God didn't just gain wisdom at this point. He he had wisdom all along. Um, yeah, I, I think again, if you just if you stick with the context, this is dealing with the personification of wisdom. It's not Christ is not in view here. Um, it it just to say that that the wisdom here is actually uh, actually referring to Christ. There's I just think there's no reason to believe that. I, I would argue that that it seems to me that one reason the feminine was chosen here was so that you wouldn't get it mixed up with 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 the Godhead with with the Trinity. Um, you you it, it seems absurd to argue that this is Jesus when this is clearly describing a woman, and and perhaps the reason God inspired it that way was so you couldn't make that mistake. And yet we do it all the same. So well, if we're influenced by the, the Shaq's version of it, um, you know, the, yeah. uh, the father is, a I think, a, a black woman, Holy Spirit's a shimmering Asian woman. And so there's, a uh, uh, lots of blurring of lines. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I'm, I tend to read it much more like you do, Greg. I mean, continuing on, you guys read verse 22. I, I just want to read it for anybody who's not familiar with it, but, um, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old from everlasting. I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains were settled before the hills, I was brought forth. So there's this language of, of, of so before other things were created, this entity thing this was being this thing was brought forth. And so um, as the first of the creation. So again, it, that's, I think, at least where the argument comes from. Um, but like you guys, I'm not persuaded by it. It's just an assertion. People just say, well, this is Jesus. Why? But why? Why would this be Jesus? Um, and we have to ask why? ourselves, what is, what is wisdom, right? Like if, if, we under, if we can put a good definition on what is wisdom, um, one that, I'm, that I've used in the past, um, knowledge, Gained through experience and or or uh, for, for human wisdom, knowledge that leads to both knowing and doing the right thing. Yeah, God possessed wisdom from the beginning. He knew and was doing the right thing, the righteous thing, the the best thing. So it's not incompatible 
But when we want to treat this personification like a real entity, a real being, this gets really confusing. When we want to treat wisdom as what wisdom is revealed to be, well, of course, God had wisdom in the beginning of his ways. Um, We talked about before, like genre, the genre of a text. Proverbs chapter 8 is using highly poetic language. The language is very poetic. It's not meant to All be. All of Proverbs is. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very, and it's really strong, especially in Proverbs 8. Um, there's other places too, but Proverbs 8 is clearly using poetic language. It's not to be understood literally. And um, I, would, I would just simply make the point that nowhere in Proverbs 8 is Jesus even, is Jesus mentioned. And the burden of proof rests on the one who is claiming that Jesus is mentioned, that Jesus is in view. The Trinitarian doesn't have to explain this. It's it's the one who's claiming that that this is referring to Jesus. They're the one that that has to to prove that. I'd also point out that uh, in the Gospels, Jesus said, "Wisdom is proved right by all her children." And the idea is just simply that wisdom is proven by the results it produces. But there, he's speaking of wisdom as someone else, and of course, he's again using personification. So um, Jesus doesn't say, I am wisdom. He's saying wisdom is proved right by all her children. And so you could simply make the case if, and we don't even need to make that case, but um, if someone is going to claim that, you know, Jesus is the wisdom that's mentioned here, well, uh, he's not mentioned in the text, and Jesus um, mentioned wisdom as someone else. And, of course, that's personification. So there's, there's no argument to be made whatsoever that the wisdom in Proverbs 8 is talking about Jesus. Yeah, I, I would find it just to be very poor interpretive practice to ignore so many other clear um, verses that are obviously about the Son. Um, for example, a prophecy in Micah 5 2, uh, talking about the, the birthplace of the Messiah will be in Bethlehem. And uh, it says that his goings forth are from eternity. So, speaking of an eternal being that is going to be born in this place, um, that's so much more explicit, so much more direct. Than a personified woman, uh, you know, uh, take of, of wisdom and attribute. And Greg, you know, as you kind of started us off, this is this is uh, <laughs> just not clearly about Jesus. And so, if this is going to cause problems with my theology about the Son, I'm just going to say, well, this this isn't about the Son, and it's it's about something else. And so, I can affirm that this is saying what it seems to be saying instead of saying that Jesus is this personified uh, wisdom woman from from Proverbs chapter eight. Like that just doesn't. It just doesn't fit with anything else. And so um, the only way I would be persuaded by that is if I have some preconceived agenda to try and make Jesus the first creation or the first created being. But um, I don't know of anybody who would sit down and read Proverbs chapter eight with like a, an actual clean slate and go, wow, isn't that amazing? Uh, Jesus is this personified w- wisdom woman. Uh, like that's just not, that's not a conclusion that you would draw. Um, you have to, you have to eisegete that into the text, I, I think. So um I bring it up not because it's necessarily a good argument. It is just it's one that I've heard uh, from time, uh, you know, time and time again. Um, other objections that you guys have heard. I mean, we talked about the firstborn. We talked about this uh, uh, Proverbs eight. Um, other objections that you guys have heard. I've, I've heard maybe one other one um, uh, that you know Jesus became divine at his baptism. He became the Christ. Then I don't know if you guys have ever heard this one, but uh, someone said that you know Jesus wasn't always divine. Uh, he lived all of his life up until his baptism. He wasn't divine, but then the Holy Spirit came on him. This is maybe like more new agey type ideas um, that he, you know, 
became Christ. He became divine. That Christ consciousness came upon him. And that's the same thing that can come upon us. We can be, we can be like Christ in that regard. Have you ever heard this uh, objection or, um, yeah, I haven't Christ. heard it, but but it definitely flies in the in the face of all of the pre-birth narrative that we that we get. I've I've heard the argument, and I yeah, I don't think there's anything to it. Well, if there's not much more discussion about uh, that objection, any other objections that you guys have heard about the uh, the divinity of Christ um, before we move on to the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the personality of the Holy Spirit? No, no. All right. Well. Um, Eric, you want to kick us off again with uh, a case? If someone says, I, you know, I either believe that the Spirit isn't God or that the Spirit is kind of an impersonal force, those are related, but um, certainly um, don't necessarily get the exact same treatment. So uh, how would you uh, kind of build your biblical case for the third person of the Trinity? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's a huge mistake to believe that the Holy Spirit is some impersonal force. Uh, many people seem to think this, and I've, I've even heard Christians talk like this, and I know they, they're probably just not really thinking about what they're saying. Uh, but when the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit, it always uses personal pronouns, such as he, in, for example, John 14, 17. Um, but Scripture also says the Spirit creates, speaks, helps, guides, testifies, intercedes, searches, knows, and grieves, among other things. And these are all things that a person does, not an impersonal force. So the plain teaching of the Bible from beginning to end is that the Holy Spirit is a person, and actually the Holy Spirit's never described any other way. It's always uh, described as a, a person, and there's no exceptions to that rule. But why should we believe that the Holy Spirit is God? That's an entirely different thing. Well, uh, one reason, and this may sound insignificant at first, but one reason is the Holy Spirit um, is holy. <laughs> like, uh, holy as God is holy. But even more than that, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit has the same attributes as God. Not only is the Holy Spirit holy, but he's also uh, omniscient. Uh, John 16, 12 through 13. He's omnipotent. <clears throat> and actually, I want to read this because this is from Psalm 104, uh, verse 30. And again, I, I apologize for going really quickly through this. I'm not trying to go quickly, but you guys know that I have like, uh, there's like tons of notes on this. And I, I am really bad at um, like going about things in a quick way. <laughs> so I have to really I be aware noticed. of. Yeah, I know. That's one of my great weaknesses. Um, but uh, I have um, I, I have a really bad habit of like going on and on and on because I got all this information to work with. So I'm going to try and just make this as short and succinct as possible. But in Psalm 104, uh, verse 30, notice it says, You send forth your spirit. They are created. And you renew the face of the ground. It, it, it sounds here as if he's saying that the Holy Spirit actually gives life. The Holy Spirit actually creates life. And that's something that only God can do. Uh, we don't read of any other you know, person or, or being that is able to actually create life itself. That's a, um, that's, something, that's a quality that only God has. 
And uh, also, um, the Holy Spirit seems to be omnipresent. And that's uh, found in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, where David says, no matter where I go, I can't get away from the Holy Spirit. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, if I go up to heaven, I can go anywhere, anywhere in the whole world, anywhere in the universe. And the Holy Spirit is there, implying that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. And uh, also, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, uh, I'll just I'll read the verses rather than trying to explain what's going on here. But in Acts chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 3, and this is, this, is, um, this is the text that's talking about Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now notice very carefully that at first he says they lied to the Holy Spirit, but then he says you've lied to God. And as I read that, I, it, it strikes me that Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit is God. If you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God because the Holy Spirit is God. He's the, as we would say, the, the third member of the Trinity. So this is a, a very, um, like I said, it's a brief, it's a bre- abbreviated version for my argument uh, for why I believe the Holy Spirit is God. And I think it's I think it's a, it convinces me. It's not going to maybe convince everybody, but I think when you put all this together, it makes a strong case that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. Yeah, I'd say amen to all of that. Every, every instance where you see uh, the Holy Spirit, he, he is spoken of, and he functions as a willful being, uh, a being that, that operates, that moves, that does. Um, not not ever as this impersonal force. Um, so, amen. Well, Greg, uh, unlike uh, you and me, Eric, it does uh, have the ability to be succinct, um, but I, I also will say amen. I uh, I certainly can relate uh, to what you were saying. I've uh, been known to go on a little too long uh, <laughs> myself from time to time. Um, but uh, I would recommend anybody who um, is wrestling through this, uh, the first chapter I would point people to, and, and again, maybe you guys would, um, I mean, Eric, this is, it, all the things that you said I agree with, Acts chapter 5 is probably, um, in, in my opinion, the most convincing direct statement. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. Most uh, convincing direct declaration of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. For those looking for the personality of the Holy Spirit, um, Romans chapter 8, that's a chapter we've discussed um, at length for, for various reasons. Um, but many of the, the attributes that you described um, maybe not all of them, but many of them um, are are there in Romans chapter eight. And um, a more technical argument that is related to what you said at the very beginning, Eric, about uh, the pronouns. Um, actually, grammatically, um, this even becomes more significant. Um, not just because we don't use the, the it language for the Holy Spirit, but he language that becomes even more dramatic when we realize that uh, spirit 
is not masculine by gender. Uh, and so when uh, the Greek authors, for example, use the masculine pronoun, they are actually uh, violating concord and they're doing that on purpose. So uh, if they weren't um, speaking of the, the actual personality and divinity of the Holy Spirit, they would never do that. You know, it'd be very easy to use it language rather than he language because neuma is uh, neuter. Um, and I've even heard people claim uh, that the Holy Spirit is a, is a woman. I don't know if you guys have ever encountered that before. Obviously, the, the shack uses that imagery, but uh, uh, grammatically, um, I think ruach uh, in Hebrew is feminine. Um, I'd have to double check that. I'm pretty sure that that's where the argument comes from. I wrote an article about it a long, long time ago, but again, it was a long time ago now, uh, of if the Holy Spirit is a she, and it's, of course, terrible. Um, uh, do you want to explain that, Joe? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but do you want sure. to explain that for anybody who's not used to gendered language? Because in English, we don't have gendered grammar. Right. Yeah. So um, gender as a grammatical principle is not the same as what we talk about, like with, with human beings. When I was in um, high school, I studied Spanish. And so la lapis, uh, the pencil, el boligrafo, the, the pen. Uh, la is the feminine article, L is the masculine. But of course, we would never think, and of course, people who speak Spanish would never think that pens are men and pencils are women. That's just not, that's not what's being described. But gender is a grammatical feature. And so it would be wrong to say la boligrafo. You just wouldn't use the uh, feminine article with a masculine noun. So the article, um, the form of the article matches. It's called concord. And so it would be incorrect to say uh, L lapis. That just isn't how it works. It's la lapis. And um, so to have a, uh, in Greek, again, gender is a part of the language. In Hebrew, gender is a part of the language. Um, to have a, a, a noun or a substantive that is described with a relative pronoun that doesn't match in concord um, would be incorrect unless you were doing it with purpose. And so we can use gendered language for inanimate things, like um, people name their boats, like, you know, Lucille or something and saying, I'm taking her, I'm taking the old girl out for a spin, you know? And, and so we, we can personify objects, men, men name their cars, feminine names and stuff like that sometimes. And of course, nobody's confused by adding gender to an inanimate object. Um, but the, the use of masculine pronouns consistently, especially in violation of those gender rules uh, in, in grammatical terms, um, is a significant thing. And it's, it's consistent. It's over and over and over again. And there's so, also the neutered. You've mentioned Sure. Yes, neuter feminine. is a gender as well. So yes. we have masculine, uh, uh, feminine, and neuter as the three genders in grammatical terms. And, um, and yet consistently, the masculine uh, pronoun, he, is used when referring to the Holy Spirit. And so that is a, a significant fact that is maybe boring for some. Um, but when, when people would go say, oh, the, the, if I, I'm pretty sure Ruach is feminine, um, just as the, the noun itself, but then to use a masculine pronoun is violating concord to, to show that uh, this is the, the personality of the Holy Spirit is a divine person. And, um, you know, we ought to use, people used to object to that a lot you know, in the past, but now, um, now everybody's more concerned about, uh, pronouns, the pronouns that God uses concerning himself are consistently masculine pronouns. So, um, that doesn't make men better than women or something like that. But again, it is, uh, it is a, a feature to notice 
that it's not ambiguous, it's not amorphous. It is, it is a fact of the text that the masculine uh, relative pronoun is used over and over and over again for the Father, for the Son, and also for the Holy Spirit. So, um, so the personality and divinity of the Spirit um, uh, is, uh, again, I, we could go on and on about it, um, but what would you say, because, you know, Eric, you mentioned that there is um, uh, the fairly strong contingent of non-Trinitarians who, who do think of the Holy Spirit not as a he, but as an it, as the power of God. Um, is there, you know, again, aside from the things that you've said, uh, is there uh, anything else that you would uh, maybe address to someone who had that particular problem that does say, yes, I, I believe that this is the divine power of God, but but it's just God's power at work. It's not actually, um, he is not a person. Uh, would you say anything additional or, or what you've said? Was that basically the, the same, the same argument in my, I'm not trying to get you to make the same argument again. So I don't know if there's anything sure. in your mind that would be specifically addressed to that person uh, who has that, that objection. Well, I think the, the simple answer is that there's just no case to be made for it. Um, this, the Holy Spirit uh, like we said, is is always mentioned as a person, and I, I would um, I would really um, encourage Christians who are wondering about this to think about the fact that the Spirit is someone who dwells with you forever. That's what Jesus said in John fourteen. Um, he he said he said it's better that I leave you. I'm going to leave you guys. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be raised to life. And I'm going to send into heaven. But when I ascend into heaven, I'm going to send the helper to you. And he is going to be with you forever. Now, you got to think about this. If this, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling with me forever, as Jesus said, I should know who or what this is. And if I don't know who's dwelling with me forever or what's dwelling with me forever, that's a problem. That's something that you really do need to know. And, um, so it's not a trivial matter. This is not a trivial matter. This actually could not be any more important. And if I just take the the New Testament and the Old Testament's words at face value, then I have to assume that the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, again, this is someone who uh, he guides me every day. He helps me. John fourteen sixteen, uh, John sixteen thirteen. He helps and guides. Um, he intercedes for us, uh, Romans eight twenty six. He, um, you know, he he grieves when we sin, Ephesians four thirty. Uh, the the so this is this is someone. This is a person who is with me, who is interacting with me, who is um, helping to sanctify me. This is not. I I feel like I almost feel like you you can't you can't get this wrong. Because if you get this wrong, then you fail to realize there is someone dwelling in you. It's not something, it's someone. And this person is interacting with me, and he is um, helping me. So I have to interact with this, with the Holy Spirit uh, as he is, as a person. And if I don't, then um, I, I would even say you're not even understanding what the Christian life is and what it involves. So it's interaction with a person. I am walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power is not an impersonal force, but the power is, is God in me, enabling me <clears throat> to uh, follow him, to be obedient to him, to keep my heart pure. This is all, these are all things that a person is doing in me, not some, not some impersonal force. 
I think that's all well said. Uh, Greg, you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, at the risk of, of being redundant, the idea of reducing your comforter, your advocate, the one who's leading you, the one who's guiding you, to reduce that from a person, as the Bible teaches, to some cold, impersonable force it, it is a discouraging way to view the text. Um, why, why throw away something so beautiful for for something that sure it's powerful but it, it's it's not as relational um you know god communing with us god living with us god dwelling with us in the person of the holy spirit is so beautiful why would you what motivation would you have for tossing that away for for a cold and personal power impersonable power i i certainly don't intend to speak for anyone who who doesn't hold to these views um I think of people that I've encountered in my own life that I've talked to. Um, my guess is that for most of them, they are attempting to not speak wrongly about God. And if there is one God, I don't want to become a, a tritheist or a polytheist. I don't want to um, say something wrong about God's Holy Spirit, but... Um, you know, we are all in agreement on, on this video. And so, Greg, I'm with you. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far in the other direction and, and eliminate what God has actually said, because I'm trying to protect this idea in my mind. Um, and it is difficult to think about God, the Holy Spirit, taking up residence in us, dwelling in us, um, empowering us to live the Christian life. But it, I mean, Eric, you said it very well. It, it is it is necessary. And it's not just some impersonal force. Um, Greg, as you were stating, it's, it's even more beautiful than that. And, and so we're losing something huge if we get away from this. Um, I have one verse that um, I just want to read from Zechariah chapter four, verse six. This kind of stands out to me. Not that this is a proof text or a nail in the coffin, but for anybody who, who would say to me that the Holy Spirit is just the power of God, the impersonal power of God. Um, Zechariah 4, 6, it says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Um, it's, it seems odd to say, Not by might, not by power, but by my power. Like, that doesn't seem right. It's, it's saying something more than that. It's not just by force, but it's actually by God's presence, by his Holy Spirit. And so, um, with all of this being said, we've, we've, we've gone through the Bible, we've gone and we've seen that there is one God. And now there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which the Bible uh, seems to very clearly declare, not just once, but over and over and over again, are God, that there is uh, a, a distinction to be made between these persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Um, so we have one God, three persons. Um, but as you said, not everybody agrees with this. This certainly is a controversial doctrine. So. Um, Eric, I know that in your sermon you talked about it. Um, is this uh, a test of orthodoxy? Is this necessary to believe in order to be saved? Uh, can someone be saved um, and not be a Trinitarian? Um, you know, as we begin to kind of close this down, you know, we, we're not going to deal with every single objection, um, but you know, there are objectors, and so is this a is this a doctrine? Is this a truth that must be held uh, and must be articulated properly uh, in order to be saved or or no? Well, I would sure hope not, because I would say probably the vast majority of Christians would not be able to correctly articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. 
at least from my experience, that's that's been the case. Um, my belief is, even though the Trinity is a very important doctrine, um, it's it's not a doctrine that a person has to be able to clearly articulate in order to be saved. Um, I don't think belief in the Trinity, or I should say, like a like you know. A, a full understanding of the Trinity is a condition for salvation. And there's a few different reasons why I think this. Um, the first reason is because I, I'm not actually even convinced that, that the Old Testament saints even understood the concept of the Trinity. Um, I, like I said, I think there was a, a, a gradual unfolding of revelation, but we might call it like progressive revelation. And um, I, I wonder if an Old Testament saint would have even understood uh, the doctrine of the Trinity or how much of it they would have understood. I, I think that, I think probably they didn't have a, a New Testament understanding of the doctrine. And I think God just revealed this more and more throughout history so that by the time you get to the New Testament, then you have a very, um, you know, a, a much, much clearer um description of it and a much clearer understanding of it. So that's that would be the the first reason because if if you say that understanding the trinity or and believing the trinity is necessary for salvation you're I think you're probably excluding you know old testament saints um and that's that's my that's my assumption. The second thing I would say is just very simply the bible nowhere says that belief in the trinity is necessary for salvation. What does the bible say? You have to believe. Well, in John 8, 24, Jesus said, Therefore, um, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, Jesus said that unless you believe that I am he, and I take that to mean unless you believe that I am the Messiah, Jesus said, then you'll die in your sins. He doesn't say, you know, unless you believe in the concept of the Trinity, or unless you understand the Trinity, you'll be saved, um, or you'll die in your sins. That's not really what he says. Um, now, I guess maybe some people could take that a different way, but that's that's how I understand it. And the gospel, um, among other things, is uh, of course we've included we've, we we have and we could include so many different aspects of the gospel, like the kingdom aspect, you know, the uh, the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, future redemption, all that stuff. There's many different aspects of the gospel. But, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, that he preached the gospel to them. And he said the gospel is, uh, among other things, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if you, and when you believed that, you were saved. So he says that belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ brought their salvation. He didn't say, well, you you were saved when you embraced the Trinity. Um, he, de- he never spoke like that. Now, again, it's, I, I have to emphasize this. It's important. I think it's important to get an understanding of the Trinity. I th- and I think if you, as you grow as a Christian and you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, you are, you're going to understand it better and um, and hopefully, you know, you're going to have a, a really solid um, grasp on it. Not an exhaustive grasp, but a solid grasp nonetheless. 
Um, but I, I don't think that you have to believe the Trinity or, or, or understand the Trinity in order to be saved. I would point out one last verse as far as verses go. 1 John 5, 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Again, John doesn't say you're born of God if you believe that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Um, he says you have to believe that Jesus is uh, is born of God. Um, so I just I simply don't I don't see the Bible saying that you have to specifically believe in the Trinity in order to be saved. Um, I think obviously there are things you do have to believe correctly. I'm not saying just you know well if you're just if you're if you're sincere that's enough. No, you, there are things you do have to believe correctly. I just don't think the Trinity specifically is one of them. And I'll be honest with you, I think for the first few years of my Christian life, I, I could not have articulated the Trinity. I was I was wrestling with even like what I thought about it. Um, but one thing that I did believe without a doubt was that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for my sins. He rose from the dead. He's going to return someday. And I want to follow him and be his disciple. Um, I I did believe that, but I, I wrestled, I would say for the first few years, I wrestled with the Trinity and I even was questioning whether it was true or not. Um, but I, through seeking and through um, studying the scriptures, I came to believe that it was true. This is taught in the Bible. And um, and now here we are, you know, teaching it. So, yeah, I those are my thoughts on it. Um, there may be some who disagree. I think there are some Christians who would say you do have to believe in the Trinity in order to be saved. But I'm I'm uncomfortable with that simply because I I just don't see that as being explicitly taught in Scripture. Yeah, I guess I I definitely want to make clear that I don't believe that a person's ability to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity is any sort of test of, of salvation or orthodoxy. Um, I believe there are many good and godly saved people who don't possess the mental faculty to explain or to begin to explain something like this. So um, I, I would never make the articulation of a doctrine uh, uh, lay that on somebody. Um, as a prerequisite for salvation. I would say that if you think you belong to Christ and you deny his divinity, which is an essential, an essential part of the doctrine of the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, if you deny the divinity of Christ, um, I would go so far as to say you are holding to heretical, you are a heretic, you're holding to a doctrine that is clearly against uh, scriptural teaching. Um, now, do I believe that there's room for a person coming to faith and, and needing to mature over time in their understanding of doctrines taught by the Bible? Well, praise God, of course there is. Um, not, not one of us came to faith as mature as hopefully we are now, or as surely as mature as we need to be. Um, but yeah, the denial of the Godhood, the divinity of Christ, um, that seems to be a clear um, a clear line of delineation in my view. Um, now, what you understand of the Holy Spirit, um, yeah, um, I guess I'm not prepared to draw any hard lines there. 
but um, as you are being taught by the Holy Spirit, as as God's word is being unfolded and understood by you through prayer, through study, um, to continue to reject what is clearly taught, um, I I would say repent and believe and submit yourself to the clear teaching of Scripture. So, well, Greg, I I um I think you actually answered what was going to be my follow up question because um, I don't I agree with you both. I don't know that um, you know the entrance into heaven is going to be based on some like you know oral exam where we have to articulate you know these doctrines uh, perfectly correctly. Certainly, when I became a Christian. I had I couldn't have articulated the the Trinity correctly to save my life, and I already admitted I you know I I thought I was the originator of the water analogy, and, and I realized I was just making the same error as many people have made before. Um, and so uh, ability to articulate the the Trinity, you know, being a, a condition for salvation, um, I don't think that that's right. I don't think I became saved once I was you know able to articulate it better, um, and. Like you guys said, I'm, I'm I'm not sure that I'm not sure that even at this current state that I'm saying it as correctly or as accurately as possible. Absolutely. Um, but the the follow up question is the flip side of it, which I think Greg, you were kind of driving at. I do I do wonder if it's the same to uh, reject the Trinity, like to to not believe absolutely in yeah. the divinity of Christ, um, or to uh, persistently, even in the face of of reading. For example, the personality attributes that are read in Romans chapter eight, just for example, um, to say that the Holy Spirit is not uh, a person. There are these scary phrases about, you know, unless we believe what God says about his son, unless we believe, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be committing blasphemy of the spirit by saying things about the spirit that aren't true. Um, And I know that those are hotly debated passages. People interpret those things differently. I wasn't sure if those are exactly the same thing. In my mind, they are slightly different. Someone in my is, mind, they are different. You know, yeah, the, someone who's the young lack of faith. understanding, the lack mm-hmm. of of knowledge, and the rejection of true knowledge, I think, are two different things. I yeah. was going to make that distinction earlier too, because it's yeah, those are those are two totally different things. Yeah, it's it's one thing if someone doesn't really have a, a good grasp on the Trinity; they just simply are ignorant of it, and they they know Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, and they they know a little bit, but not a lot. I don't think that's a deal breaker. Um, but yeah, if you, if you have like full knowledge and understanding and, and, and after that you reject um, these things, I, yeah, then I, I would wonder, you know, why, why would, why would someone do that? Is this, is this, is this rebellion or is this just simply, they're not convinced by the arguments? If you're, if you're a believer who possesses the Holy Spirit, why would you reject the Holy Spirit? Um, it's concerning. That's a fair question. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly, um, you know, we've, we've discussed some of these themes before. It's one of the more controversial statements that I say, which is really saying something, but you know, we're not, we're not saved by our faith. We're saved by the person Christ. And so if, if we have in our mind, an idea of Christ that we're putting our faith in, that isn't actually Jesus, um, that idea, that idol isn't going to save us. And so if I'm trusting in a non-divine savior, if I reject, if someone says, no, Jesus is the divine son of God, I go, no, he's not. He's the first created being of God. Um, and that's who I'm trusting in. Well, I don't know. You know, God knows our hearts. I, I just, I would be much more concerned about that, that statement 
than someone who says, I believe that Jesus is my savior. I believe he's the son of God. And you're like, is he divine? They're like, I don't, I don't know. Um, but yes, the Holy Spirit should be leading us and guiding us that the more we read scripture, the more I read the Bible, the more places I see the divine nature of Christ just kind of popping out things that I'd never seen before that I'd never, that I'd never seen before. Same thing for the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, the, the God wants us to know him. And as we walk with him, um, I, I do, I do like you guys, I view it differently. I, I would never say that someone has to correctly articulate the Trinity, certainly to my standard or to anybody else's to be a, a saved person. Um, but to persist and to, um, to continue to uh, fight against the divinity of Christ, for example, that's a much more concerning thing. And I don't, I don't necessarily view those the same. So, um, well, guys, I don't know if there's anything else, you know, I like this conversation could go on forever. We didn't talk about like, you know, Jesus praying to the father is, is Jesus praying to himself? Like th these objections, if we understand that there are different persons, no, the, the son is praying to the father. That's not a, a bizarre or, or incoherent idea. Um, it's not Jesus praying to himself because the father is not the son and the son is not the father. So that's not a, these aren't like real objections if you actually understand the view, but is there anything that we haven't discussed that you guys are thinking of just again, for the sake of completeness that we need to bring out or that hasn't been, um, uh, fully fleshed out again. I, I know we're not going <laughs> to, there, there's, there's so much that we could talk about, but anything that you see as a glaring omission before we, uh, uh, sign off for, uh, for another episode. I think for me, the, just the, the biggest stumbling block with the Trinity is it's difficulty to, to fully understand. Um, and I would say not difficulty to fully understand, but it, it's probably impossible, at least right now to fully understand it. Um, just certain aspects of it. Like there's just, even like, I know what eternity is, but I don't know what it is. Like I, 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 in its most basic form, I get it, but I don't really fully get it um, because I'm a finite being. And I think I would encourage people that, um, you know, you can know, you can understand the Trinity correctly without understanding it exhaustively. You don't have to have an exhaustive understanding of something in order to understand it, in order to believe it. Um, I mean, God. You don't have an you don't have an exhaustive understanding of yourself, exactly, so, or so of anything, aside, yeah, or or of anything, right? Of the anything. thing we know best, ourselves. We don't fully understand ourselves. No. So, so why would you? Why out of what? well of pride would you think that you're going to understand and to to fully grasp the idea of god and who he is uh, you know keeping in mind his holiness it, it it it's it's an absurd expectation it is and it's and it's contradictory too um for people that like because people will people they'll reject the trinity because they can't fully understand it but they'll believe all sorts of other things that they can't fully understand so it's like you know like you said, that's a good point, Greg. You, none of us knows everything about anything. Um, we, we don't. We're just, we, we're ignorant of many things, but um, that doesn't mean that we can't still know things correctly. I mean, at, at least at a basic level. So I'm, you know, I, I don't know every single thing there is to know about my wife. She doesn't know every single thing there is to know about me, um, but yet we're still in a relationship. So you can have a relationship with God without fully understanding God. That, that doesn't, that, that shouldn't hold you back. So I don't want people to, to, to feel uneasy or to, um, to feel like if they don't understand the Trinity in its fullness, then they can't believe it because they're doing that with other things anyway. 
but um, you know, seek the scriptures. Make sure that you're seeking with a with a sincere and honest heart. And and I'll make a very bold statement. I believe if you are seeking uh, to know the truth with a, a sincere heart, you're going to eventually become a Trinitarian. And I know that people go, "Whoa, you know, are you saying that I don't have a sincere heart?" Well, may, maybe you do, but maybe you just haven't sought long enough. So Jesus said, "Seek." That's a continual verb. You, you seek and you keep seeking. Don't seek once and give up. Keep seeking. And if you do, and if you're honest, I, I believe the Trinity is, um, is a conclusion that you'll come to. Amen. Yeah, I, uh, uh, I'm in full agreement with you guys. I think that it's, uh, it's very well said. I think that the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of hell are probably the two. They're, they're, they're difficult for different reasons. Um, these are, there's a reason why some of the cults use these as the main uh, opportunity to try and gain a foothold, um, to try and get people to um, give up Trinitarian belief because it's, it's hard to understand. So it, that kind of gives a, a foothold to try and get in. Um, and it's also, it's difficult to think that uh, a loving God would send people to hell forever. Um, but, you know, we, we, do, uh, we do have a responsibility as Christians if we're going to say we believe God to just take him at his word. And, and so, yeah, if he tells us that he is this way, then we can rightly understand that even if we don't fully understand it. And um, yeah, like, as you guys are saying that that's true about anything thinking, you know, your cell phone in your pocket, you don't really understand how that thing works most likely. Um, but uh, you can use it. You can still like live your life with it being a part of your life. Um, and likewise, I don't really understand how an eternal being is a thing because I'm not an eternal being, but I do want to rightly understand what God has told me about himself. And so this is why it's important for us to not try and go too far beyond uh, what is written. We're always going to get ourselves into trouble the further we go beyond what is written. Um, and although the Trinity isn't explicitly stated that God is a triune being, um, when we see these just very plain truths, there is one God, Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. That's where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. And uh, hopefully we can grow in our understanding of this as we walk with the living God. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a doctrine that I'm not sure that I'll ever, ever fully understand, even in glory when we worship the Father and worship the Son and worship the Holy Spirit with that great multitude of the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, na nation, and people. I, I, I don't know. Um, it's part of the, the awe and glory of worshiping him. Like He is so far beyond our understanding. And uh, Eric, I think you kind of started us off. I, I do not think this is a doctrine that man would have made up. Like it's, it's something that God has given to us. And so um, it's a beautiful thing to wrestle with and try and understand um, and to, to seek to continue to grow in our understanding of. So uh, let's leave it there for today, guys. Uh, as always, I uh, once again, I'm thankful for your time. I'm thankful for you uh, adding your perspective. I appreciate um, um, you guys uh, talking through some of these things with me. And um, I hope uh, that if anybody is uh, still watching this video, that they likewise were encouraged and edified to think more deeply about the true and living God that uh, we serve and worship and have opportunity to be reconciled to through Jesus Christ. Uh, so if you did like this video, click that thumbs up button. Uh, consider uh, commenting and letting us know uh, how you think about these things. If there's objections that you have or that you've heard or anything that you want to talk about, uh, uh, feel free to sound off in the comments down below. And until we see you again, get equipped, obey your king, and glorify your God.